Welcome to the CultureWise Podcast, where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace. Here we aim to discuss topics relating how followers of Jesus can more effectively reach Latter-day Saints in their relational networks. My name is Daniel Sugart, and I'm joined today by Ross Anderson and Mark Parsons. Mark Parsons is uh, a missionary out in Idaho and has been engaging with Latter-day Saints for some time now. He's also a leader in an organization called Truth in Love Ministries, and I'll, I'll let him share a lot more about that in just a second. But Mark, could you first tell us just a little bit about yourself as an individual and, and how you've come to the place you are following God's calling? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the program today. Um, grew up in the, the wilds of Montrose, Colorado, um, was brought up in a small Lutheran congregation there. And from early on, my parents really trained me to be a missionary. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side, whom I never knew, um, he died a year before I was born, was uh, a missionary in China, both before and after the Second World War. And it was really the stories that I heard of him and my uncles and aunts who served in China during those years um, growing up, just that's that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be a missionary. And right away, when I was five years old on a playground in public school, I invited a little boy named Jonas um, to come to church with me the next week, and he did. And then the next week, his whole family came. And from there, our congregation started an outreach to the um, Cora Indian people of Nayarit, Mexico. And um, early on, my mom, who was fluent in Spanish, got me and my three brothers involved in ministry. And we really just grew up um, as an integral part of that Hispanic outreach in Montrose, Colorado. And from there, um, just sharing the gospel was as important to us as playing basketball or street hockey um, as boys. And two of us grew up to be pastors, one a Lutheran school teacher, another does great outreach um, work through his congregation in Colorado. So I um, had always wanted to be a world missionary. I wanted to be like my grandpa, um, head off to some foreign field. Um, never had that opportunity throughout college or, or seminary to travel abroad and then served a Lutheran congregation in Port Charlotte, Florida, a mission restart, they called it, for about six years. Got very involved in cross-cultural um, youth ministry, um, not something that I was necessarily prepared for, um, but got very involved in outreach to um, just many, many different cultures there in Port Charlotte. And eventually a congregation in Wisconsin reached out to me saying, we'd like you to come and do youth outreach here. Um, they were a very large congregation, um, but wanted to engage with the youth of the community. So moved there and for about five and a half years served as an associate pastor um, with youth and outreach. And during that time really started to dive into how to contextualize the gospel for the youth of today and really figure out ways to outreach to youth. Um, started doing a, a master's program in contextualizing the gospel. And it was during that time that a organization called Truth and Love Ministry um, reached out to me saying, we'd like you to come and be a missionary to Mormons. Um, when I initially received that phone call, I said, well, I don't necessarily know a lot about Mormons, maybe not anything more than any of my seminary classmates. And they said, that's okay, we'll give you time to learn it. Uh, we understand that you're a guy that loves the lost and um, understands the idea of contextualization. And so they said, we'd love you to join our team, move to Nampa, Idaho. I'd never been to Idaho. So that was a little bit of a, a shock to move to Idaho. 
Uh, but the, the Truth and Love ministry team invited me to join them in their twofold mission of proclaiming Christ to Mormons and empowering Christians to witness. And they do that through two sides of the ministry. Uh, one that is Truth in Love Ministry, tilm.org, um, that really equips Christians to witness um, through online trainings, um, blog posts, um, thousands and thousands of pages of resources that folks can dive into to really understand our method of outreach, which is focusing on proclaiming Christ rather than debating Mormonism. And then on the direct to Mormon side of the ministry, we have what's called Be Ye Perfect. And on that side, it is a direct arm to, I would say what we refer to sometimes more as blinded Mormons, um, those that are completely not ready to have a conversation about anything wrong with their church. And we're really just planting seeds. We never use even the word Mormon. We never talk about the priesthood. We never talk about things in a, a very specific way, just so that we can plant some seeds. So I, I did not think that I was going to have to learn a new language as a stateside missionary, but as the two of you well know, the, the language of Mormonism, even though it's in English and sounds a lot like the language of Christianity is a language that I had to learn. So that's a little bit about my background and how I got involved with the ministry. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing. So uh, as I'm hearing you talk about truth and love ministry, it, it sounds like you really are focusing on two different audiences. There's um, the the Latter-day Saint who you're very actively trying to reach with the gospel, uh, but also just pe people who are engaging with Latter-day Saints uh, and helping them to learn some tools and simple methods for, for sharing the gospel with their friends and neighbors. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And the the Christian witness um, equipping side of the ministry is really the one that's been around longer. Um, Pastor Mark Cares wrote a book, um, Speaking the Truth and Love to Mormons, back in the 80s that really launched the ministry. And for many years, that was really the primary and almost sole focus was the equipping Christians to witness. And it was really just about three and a half years ago that that new arm of the ministry um, was launched to um, really directly reach those that are still members of the LDS church. Yeah, yeah, great. So now in this role, how how do you spend your time? What are some of your personal primary objectives with TILM? Yeah, no, that, that that's a really good question. Um, no day or week looks the same. Um, I would say unlike traditional pastoral ministry in a, a local congregation where pretty much every week I knew I needed to write a Bible class, write a sermon, do some counseling, some shut-in visits, and maybe once in a while plan a budget. Um, every week here looks different. So when it comes to the Christian side of the ministry, I'm often um, involved in mentoring of our Christian witnesses. Um, we have many that are part of what's called our friends and family initiative, where they are actively witnessing to a Latter-day Saint friend or family member, and they're just looking for ways to start the conversation or to continue the conversation or to bring the conversation to Christ. And so we have some online training that they'll initially go through on their own, but then they're involved in our Truth and Love online community where they can continue to receive support. Uh, we also have an initiative called Please Open the Door, where we train Christians to be witnesses to LDS missionaries. Um, that's one of the very first things that I got to do when I joined the team was just go online and request a missionary to come over. Um, folks that are listening, what an awesome opportunity to engage with people in your community. They will send people to you, to your house. 
they come to witness to you, but you can also witness to them. And so every week's different. Yeah. So what, what are some of the lessons you've learned? I know we, we were talking just before this about some of the frameworks that you hold while you're engaging with Mormons or the, the things that you teach people as they're learning to engage with Mormons. Um, what, what are some of those big lessons learned? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think like many that are listening, the first 30 or 40 conversations I had with Latter-day Saints when I joined the ministry were those conversations where you just felt like you were constantly going in a circle where they would say something and be like, oh, I agree with that for the most part. And then you're really trying to figure out what is the central issue or the central truth that is actually behind the conversation, but we're not actually getting to it. And as I started to really develop my own witnessing skills, one of the things that kept coming up was the question, what does it take to get the best that God has to give and dwell with him eternally in his presence? And I'll, I'll try and shorten that up a little bit. So maybe what does it take to live with heavenly father for all eternity. So as many of you probably are aware in the, in the Mormon system of the afterlife, there's the three kingdoms. And I'm saying, I, I don't care about living in one of those lower kingdoms. I want to be with heavenly father himself. So what does it take to get there? And I always find that that kind of cuts through a lot of the conversations that maybe take you two or three hours where they're like, oh, we're just like you. We believe in salvation by grace alone. And I'll ask them to unpack what salvation means. And in the end, they've got nine different definitions. They're not the definition that I would use from the Bible. But to cut past all of that and say, all right, ultimately, I want to be with Heavenly Father for all eternity. What does it take? And they'll say, well, you need to be perfect. You need to be righteous. And that's when my little ears or my, my heart and my mind say, all right, we're finally really getting at it. And really one of the things that I've started to realize is that it all comes down to what does it take to approach or attain God? And in the Bible, it is righteousness. In Mormon theology, it is righteousness. But there's a problem. Can you guess what that problem is, Ross? How would you say that the typical... Latter-day Saint would describe the concept of righteousness or the need to be perfect. Yeah, it's very practical. It's a sense of how, what do I have to do in order to be worthy? And we use worthiness language a lot because Mormons use worthiness language a lot. Uh, what do I have to do to be worthy of God's uh, approval or of God's welcome to, to uh, attain or merit the celestial kingdom? So this, this emphasis on righteousness has to do with my righteousness before God. What is, what is, what is, you know, what, what is God's standard? What is God's uh, measuring stick? How do I have to achieve? What do I have to do to achieve that, that bar, you know, to get, to get to that bar? So it's a great, interesting conversation, really. It's fascinating. It, I think you're, you're right. It does really get at the heart of all, all the other things you're talking about, priesthood or, moral code standard whatever all those things really are reflections right of of the what i have to do in somewhere yeah another. yeah you're absolutely right i think it is really th things things don't change you know even though the christian 
doctrine has been being distorted for over 2000 years. The LDS teaching really just is a, a new way of distorting it in a same old way. Um, really from the very beginning, when Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, he was convincing them that the thing that was going to make them right um, was to do. And what righteousness in the LDS church now is, it's, it's really building off of the old Latin concept of the opinio legis, the opinion that the law is the thing that will save me. It is what I do that will help me attain a right relationship with God. And the reason why that is so prevalent is that's, that's human nature. That, that is this ingrown idea or inborn idea that man needs to bridge this gap between himself and the divine and the way that he must do that is by works, um, by effort. And the Mormon doctrine really has built upon that and has added ladder steps and structures to that that really say that this is attainable, that man through becoming worthy and eventually becoming perfect can attain God through his own righteousness. As I started to really wrestle with this concept of righteousness in Mormonism, I mentioned earlier that I was a Lutheran pastor, and so a lot of the lens through which I view scripture is somewhat through a, a Lutheran biblical perspective. And one of the concepts that really started to come to the surface, um, and this happened actually last um, October as I was preparing a Reformation sermon, celebrating um, the, the Lutheran Reformation, was preparing a sermon on Romans chapter 3 that is all about righteousness, not by works, but by faith. I came across an old Martin Luther sermon from uh, 1517, or after 1517, when he really starts to develop true Christian doctrine. Um, he wrote a sermon called The Two Kinds of Righteousness based on Philippians 3, where he realizes that in the Bible, there are two different kinds of righteousness that are really being talked about. The first righteousness which is a righteousness in the presence of God. I love to throw the Latin out once in a while is the righteousness coram Deo. So righteousness in the presence of God. Um, people built on that language later on and later reformers called it positional or passive righteousness, the righteousness of the gospel an alien righteousness or Christian righteousness. Um, this alien righteousness, don't think of like, you know, little green men coming down and giving this righteousness, but it's from the Latin, really the idea of it's outside of yourself. It has to be imputed or given to you. It's instilled from without. Um, a modern Lutheran theologian, Robert Cold, called it the righteousness of identity because it restores man's identity as a child of God. Um, some have said that this kind of righteousness has to do with the Christian's status before God. He now views one as righteous. It is a positional righteousness that is not earned, rather it is given, and it is received by the gift of grace. So that's that's the way that the Bible primarily uses the concept of righteousness. It's, it's something that is granted and gifted through the working of the Holy Spirit. When Christians understand that righteousness, it's going to allow them to understand the second kind of righteousness better. Would you... How, how would you think that our, our average Latter-day Saint friend or family member understands that first kind of righteousness? Do they even understand this alien righteousness given from God, instilled from without? Do they have that sense at all? Well, they, you know, it's interesting. No, that's not their experience at all. 
because the idea the idea in the LDS world is that I have to achieve that position rather than be given that position. And yet there is one area, one tiny area where the idea of imputed righteousness does play in to LDS culture, and it has to do with proxy ordinances for the dead. Right, so that's an interesting, that's a tangent. Maybe we don't have time to get onto that today, but but the, the idea that someone else does for you what you cannot do for yourself, and that you simply have to accept that provision that's made for you, then that that's, I think, the foot in the door maybe, or or like it in the past, missiologists would talk about redemptive analogies. Um, that might be a redemptive analogy that Christians can build on to help Mormons this idea of alien righteousness is completely alien to Mormon thinking um, because it's all about what do I do? What do I do to achieve that, that standing before God? You know, Ross, right. I, I really appreciated you bringing up the idea of the proxy baptisms because that is a connection that I've made as well when I've spent some time witnessing at temples. When I engage with folks that are either going in or coming out, I, I, I take the curious approach and just ask, well, what are you here for? What, what are you doing? And when they talk about proxy baptisms and tell me about that, I often will say, can I tell you about the way in which I understand the proxy? And so it's a really, like you said, a really easy connection to make. They, they understand that idea of some, doing something for someone else. And I'll say, well, guess what? Someone that was perfect did this for you. you go, you're going in there as an imperfect person to do baptism, but someone who's perfect did this for you. Right. Yeah. I, I was just having a conversation very recently um, with a gal who early this year had left Mormonism and she started following Jesus. And so my, my friend and I were talking with her and it was interesting because her, her language is still kind of caught up in the language that she had already learned. Um, and so as, as we were highlighting the gospel, we were talking, having a conversation about baptism and highlighting the gospel and, and what what salvation actually is and then how baptism represents and reflects that um, transformation. And and one of the things that she said is, now now I know that I have, I have to just keep climbing that ladder. Um, and of course, I, I recognize that phrase from, from many Latter-day Saints, missionaries and friends um, that have used the analogy of uh, be becoming righteous or becoming worthy is is more like climbing a ladder, uh, and and that's that's a concept that doesn't that doesn't easily die um, because it was so ingrained in my friend, and so e even though she's she's like reforming how this analogy works in her mind, uh, she's still using the words and the phrase and maybe getting tripped up a little bit on that. But yeah, I've seen just um mormons don't have much of an idea of imputed righteousness from god that's positional and status and identity changing um and i think part of that is because they don't they don't see an issue with their initial identity their, their identity is a position of of favor it's a position of i'm i'm already a child of god and so there's in their in their hearts they don't thirst for this need of having a new identity, a new position, something that they don't already have. And so in that, they, their only work then is to produce in them the righteousness that attains to that, that godness. A absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the kind of intricacies of talking about righteousness with our Latter-day Saint friends is 
before we can talk about imputed righteousness, we have to really talk about inborn natural sin and the problem that we have with that, because you're not going to appreciate a righteousness that is being gifted to you if you already think you're on your way towards that, that you started with this. And that, that will be you know, another conversation that we can have on another dichotomy that has been really important of sin, grace, faith, and works, how that progression is laid out throughout the Bible. And maybe if we've got time, we can circle back to talking about that because I often overlay that with the conversation on righteousness. Yeah, so you, you've been describing there, there's two different kinds of righteousness. And as you're, as you're approaching evangelistic conversations with Mormons, as you're witnessing of the gospel, you, you really have this as a framework in your mind of there's two different kinds of righteousness. And you, you've spent some time describing the one, the biblical righteousness. How, how would you describe the, the second kind of righteousness? Yeah. And how do no. they interplay? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that this is probably the kind of righteousness that our Latter-day Saint friends are more drawn to as they read scripture, because it is a biblical righteousness. It's just not the same righteousness as the first kind of righteousness. So in, in the, the old Lutheran Latin, um, it was righteousness quorum mundo, or righteousness in the eyes of the world. Um, the later reformers called it practical or active righteousness, or even civil righteousness. Others called it proper or the righteousness of the law. So kind of we'll go back and contrast those back with the, the um, parallel terms with the first kind. Um, this righteousness is in every way contingent, though, on the alien righteousness that is provided. You can't do righteousness in the eyes of the world unless you are already in a status of righteous in the eyes of God. Um, Robert Kolb, that same modern Lutheran theologian, called it the righteousness of character because it deals with attitudes and behaviors. Um, unlike the righteousness in the eyes of God, or that one was of status, this one is now of service. This practical righteousness takes place when Christians live out their positional righteousness in the world. So maybe an easy way to think about it is two different planes. Um, we've got this vertical plane between man and God. And the first kind of righteousness really deals with that plane. And then there's the horizontal plane that deals with the things of this world, our relationship with our spouse, our children, our neighbor, our friends, our family, the unbelievers in this world. That's the second kind of righteousness that is really described in the Bible. And, and, I, and it's, it's human nature to be drawn to that second kind of righteousness because it does have words like do or strive or achieve or work towards this. Um, and so when our LDS friends read the Bible, it's natural that those are the verses that they're going to be drawn to. And so when I talk about righteousness, the two kinds, I often like to use Bible stories that really emphasize both kinds of righteousness. Almost every conversation I have with missionaries or with people that I meet at the temple or people that I've been witnessing to for a time, eventually come to James chapter two. They'll say, all right, I, I, I hear everything you're saying, Pastor Mark, but what about, what about James two? What about what James says about faith without works being dead? And I'll say, I'm so glad that you brought us to James chapter two, because I love to talk to them about Abraham and about Rahab, because that's what James talks about. And I always ask, when it comes to the righteousness that the Bible talks about with Abraham, 
does it declare him righteous before or after he sacrifices Isaac? So James 2 is talking about the, the thing that is being on display is that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And this showed him as righteous in his generation. But I always say, when did that happen? And I'll ask them to open up the Bible. And I'll say, that happens in the latter part of Genesis 21, moving into Genesis 22. But when was Abraham declared to be righteous? And they're like, well, it has to be right then. I'll say, no, we have to back all the way up to Genesis chapter 15, where it says to us that Abraham believed and he was declared or it was credited to him as righteousness. And a lot of my con friends will say like, what? I never knew that. Like, and they'll, they'll, they'll track it. And then I'll say, and then what, what did Abraham do right after he was declared righteous in Genesis 15? Genesis 16, 17, 18, 19, he's lying about his wife, says that he's his sister. He's sleeping with Hagar, his maidservant, doing things that we would say in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of God are very unrighteous. But he's already been given that alien righteousness, that positional status before God back in Genesis chapter 15. Ross, have you, you ever had conversations on Abraham and his righteousness and then his righteous acts with folks before? How has that gone? No, no, that's a great, no, that's a great approach. I, you know, we've talked uh, to people, I've talked to people from Romans chapter four, but I, but I like the idea, I really like the idea of taking it back to the original core stories and showing the timeline in, in Genesis, partly because a lot of Latter-day Saints are a little bit suspicious of Paul and Pauline theology. That's why they love to go to James and try to pit James against Paul. So it really makes a lot of sense to go back to the original timeline and the original events on Abraham's life to, to really understand what's going on in James 2 as well as in Romans chapter 4. No, I, I love that, Ross. Um, recently, I was talking to uh, an LDS missionary friend named Thomas, and he said, Mark, I think what it really comes down to is you're a Paul kind of guy and I'm a James kind of guy. And and then I was like, let's let's be Paul and James and Jesus and Abraham kind of guys. And like, yeah, that's that's yeah. kind of fascinating. Yeah. So tell us. So um, what are some other passages that you've that you've used um, to talk to talk about where you say you, you mentioned the idea of showing both kinds of righteousness in the same frame? What are help our listeners understand where else maybe they could see some of that? Yeah, you, you, you've you've kind of mentioned some of it already with Romans four. So I will I will usually back up and start with Romans three and really work yeah. through Paul's just beautiful, you know, declaration of what it means to be justified by faith apart from works there. And what he was really trying to do in that section was put the gospel on equal playing field for Jew and Gentile. But it works as well with, with our, our LDS friends to really say, you who are trying to attain a righteousness based on the law, oh, you got to wake up and realize that this is an impossibility. You know, I, I, I just think about both Jesus and Paul in their first century audience. You know, people back then, just like today, had convinced themselves that they were pulling it off. And so I love to use Romans. Um, three and four to really say like these same people 2000 years ago thought that they were pulling off the law and really to help them see that it is 
a righteousness that is revealed by faith from the first to the last, just as written, the righteous will live. And it doesn't say by works. It says the righteous will live by faith. And that's going all the way back to Romans 1. But then building into Romans 5, where Paul says, now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that's when I'll often take the conversation back to Genesis 15 and the, the reference that's being made there. Um, because it's what Luther used for his sermon outline on the two kinds of righteousness, Philippians 3 is a, a really powerful place to go as well. And in, in a sense, it does show the two kinds of righteousness in one place where he's really talking about now, we, we want you to see Jesus and the righteousness that he was. And he too was, was understanding his role and his relationship in the Godhead. And now what we understand is that this righteousness from God depends not on works, but on faith. And that's where Paul finally comes to that conclusion that everything that I had been counting to gain, I need to count as loss. Um, he pulls out his whole list of accolades and achievements prior to this and says, everything, all of that, I count as rubbish in order that I may, be, may gain Christ and be found in him. When it comes to the second kind of righteousness, um, Paul is helpful, but um, his writings to Timothy, where he says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Uh, that's in um, chapter six, verse 11. That, that's definitely a second kind of righteousness because he's not saying, go out and do these things, Timothy, and somehow you're now going to be able to attain or approach God. He's saying, no, in your positional righteousness, now go and live this out in a practical way that serves your fellow man. Um, Luther's explanation of good works, I have always found very beneficial that, that God doesn't need our good works. But then he gives a, but your fellow man does. And when it comes to that vertical relationship with God, God does not need our good works, but he still tells us to do good in this world, to live out righteously and that is when it comes to that horizontal plane, when it comes to those around us. Um, maybe other verses for that um, would be Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter four, he's, where he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's really saying, this is who you are now. You are a child of God. Go out and live like a child of God. I don't know if either of you have other verses that immediately come to mind um, as you're thinking about the two kinds as well. Well, one thing that just came to my mind was Matthew 5, verse 16. Jesus is teaching here uh, this little sermon. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so I, I, as you were saying, God doesn't need my righteousness. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit him. It doesn't credit him. But my, my fellow man does. The, those around me need my good works so, so that they learn to glorify God. They learn to be in right relationship with him. And so here Jesus is directly connecting, you know, our, our good works teach others to proclaim God's glory. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to go to uh, Luke chapter 18 a lot with the, the Pharisee 
and the tax collector, because there you have this very, very vivid distinction between uh, righteousness before the world. It is no comparison. Uh, but you see what happens. I think it's a great illustration of what happens when a person really, really believes that their righteousness before the world or the second kind of righteousness really has made them special, really earned them something. And this guy's become arrogant, which is, you know, one of the byproducts often of this approach. And, and Jesus says, which one went home justified? Well, the word justified is the word righteousness in Greek. And so um, which one went home vindicated or declared righteous? Which one went home, you know, demonstrating righteousness? And Jesus says, no, it's the guy who, who came uh, without any, really he didn't have any um, external righteousness to offer. And so it, it, it's a vivid story Jesus uses to, to kind of poke the person who's relying on um, exterior righteousness and to show that there's something else going on that really matters more. Right. It's very clear in that story in Luke 18, the very first sentence of the story says that Jesus said these things to some who were trusting in themselves for righteousness. So there's no doubt, like he, he, he spills the main point of the teaching before he even tells the story. <laughs> um, yeah. So Mark, there, there seems to be some amount of time in this um there's, there's the element of which which kind of righteousness comes first and we might say the biblical perspective is that god's righteousness precedes the horizontal relationship before the world um and, and that that may be different from different um worldview perspectives latter-day saints often may see it a different way that their their horizontal righteousness before the world is actually what leads to their connection to God and they're being received by him. But you mentioned this other concept uh, of the four key terms are sin, grace, faith, and works. And those are those are in a particular order, as you've mentioned, intentionally. What what can you what insight can you give on that the order of those four concepts? Yeah, no, I I I appreciate you bringing that into the conversation as well because it definitely the two kinds of righteousness conversation needs to have the four key concepts, giving it some more structure. So as I teach people to study the Bible and approach the Bible from the way that the Bible teaches us to read the Bible, I'm always saying, what is this telling me about sin? What is this telling me about grace? What is this telling me about faith? What is this telling me about works? Um, a lot of churches have like a, a new member Bible class or a Bible information class. I always start with lessons on sin, grace, faith, and works that I call the, the big key concepts in the Bible. And throughout the Bible, if you open to really any chapter or page or verse, it's talking about one of those four concepts. And most of the time, you aren't going to find them in the sequence of sin, grace, faith, and works quite as simply or in that same structure. But there are a few places in the Bible where you do find that structure laid out simply. And one of those places is Ephesians chapter two. And that has been a, a major go-to for myself and our ministry of late. When we are witnessing, we really want to help folks see their need for an alien or external righteousness, because so many have this un, this idea that by nature, they are already good to go. Um, they are already on their way towards worthiness and perfection, and they just need to, to work a little harder or strive a little bit more. 
And I find that Paul's words in Ephesians chapter two really lay the foundation of saying, no, your starting point is a whole lot worse than you ever imagined. Um, I actually find this is one of the places where using the preferred translation of the Latter-day Saint, the King James Version, actually does a benefit. There, there are times, as most of the Christian witnesses listening to this know, that the King James Version, as you're reading, you're like, how did the Christian church survive for as long as it did with people reading this? Because there are certain places where the LDS interpretation of scripture is definitely tainted by the King James Version. But I love to use Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 in the King James Version. Uh, I'll ju just give an example of, of what this looks like. So this summer, we spent um, a week or actually two weeks in Provo, Utah, doing what we call at the door um, mission trip. Every year, we bring folks from all over the country to Salt Lake, and we will train them for about eight hours and then send them out knocking on doors to engage in spiritual conversations that are designed to proclaim Christ rather than debate Mormons. And this year, we were really focused on the idea of what does it take to get the best that God has to give, um, was the big question that we were asking at the door. And they would say often, well, you, you got to be worthy. You got to eventually become perfect. On our postcard that we mailed out, we had um, Matthew 5 that you referenced earlier, be ye therefore perfect as your father, which in heaven is perfect. And we asked, what does it mean to be perfect? And often it was, well, I just need to try and become more. And we would eventually transition the conversation to talk about the problem that we have with becoming perfect is that we start off not as morally neutral or not able to just get one step better and better, or we're starting out with the, the ability to choose the right, but we are dead. And so I will start reading these verses. And the, the time that this happened most beautifully is nobody was home in Provo one morning, and we eventually saw people walking and we followed them. And there were hundreds and hundreds of cars in the parking lot and on the street of the North Provo Temple. And we started in a witnessing conversation. I had eight Christian teenagers from Wisconsin with me that I could, I, we couldn't have scripted this better, where we found 12 brand new LDS missionaries at the Missionary Training Center there in Provo that were on day three. And I said, can we just have a conversation? And they all said, yeah, we got about an hour and a half before lunch. So we went to the side of the temple and I said, can we read a part of the Bible together? And they said, sure. And I asked one of the missionaries to start reading from Ephesians chapter two. And here's what he read. He said, and you he hath quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we also had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. At the moment that the male missionary read children of wrath, a sister missionary gasped. And I stopped him and I said, why did you gasp? And she said, well, I didn't know we were children of wrath. I didn't know we were children of disobedience. I was taught that we were kind of morally neutral and with the ability to choose the right. And she said, this is going to change everything if this is true. And I, I liked how she prefaced it if this was true. And so I, I asked him to continue reading. And so what we're seeing so far is that's really the section that Paul very clearly says that the problem 
that every single human being has is with sin. It's a problem that you are not able to fix on your own because you're dead. Um, I often say, what ability does a dead person have? And people will say, well, really the ability to remain dead. And, and they're right. Um, you can't have a dead person meet you halfway in anything. And that's really what all false theological systems that are grace plus works when it comes to salvation or eternal life are saying that man somehow has the ability to provide what is either lacking or what is necessary to make up for what not, has not been provided. And so I just keep pushing at that, that you were children of wrath, children of disobedience, dead in your trespasses and sins. And the only thing that can make you undead is something that makes you alive. Um, verse four is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. It's one of the many places where God says, but this is what I'm going to do. So it starts with, but God. But God, not but man, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'll always stop, and I did this with the missionary, and, and asked him to read again the tenses of the verbs. and the personal pronouns. And he's like, wow, this is all focused on the activity of God and the passivity of man or the deadness of man again, that God is the active agent here, that man is really the receiver, the receptive um, one here. So that, that's the, the, the grace part. So we've got sin, we've got grace, and then he's going to build on. So how does the grace of God that takes one from being dead to being made a life and now in this positional righteousness with God. How does that happen? Paul says, well, let me tell you how that happens. He says in verse seven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace, ye are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This really stands in direct contrast to one of the most familiar verses from the Book of Mormon from 2 Nephi that says, it is by grace ye are saved after all ye can do. Um, Paul is very clearly saying here that grace is not something that God gives you once you fulfill all of the parameters or requirements of a system of faith, but grace is given to you as a gift through the gift of faith, through the working of the Holy Spirit, not of works so that no one could boast. And so we've got sin, grace, and faith. And this, I, I, I assume Paul understands human nature where people are saying, well, what about us? What about our part in all of this? And that's where Paul so beautifully closes off this treatise on um, this doctrinal section where he says, okay, so now you, who are God's workmanship, you who have been now brought into the status of child of God, who have this position now of righteousness, you're created to do good works, which God has prepared in it or ordained in advance that we should walk in them. And that's where we can then go off and talk about the second kind of righteousness, that yes, once we understand that we were sinners, 
that the only thing that made us so that we were less than dead was the grace of God given to us by faith. Now we can go and serve our fellow man. Our Mormon friends, unfortunately, like to flip this whole equation around. And they start with works, which they say leads to having the requirements of faith, which leads to receiving the grace of God. But what you're left with still is the problem of sin that is inherent in all of us. Dan, are, are there other ways, or, or Ross, as you're, you're thinking about Ephesians 2 and you're listening to this, that you would say, you know what, we could even build on this more when it comes to our conversations with our Latter-day Saint friends? Yeah, I think one big challenge is the the word faith. What, what does that actually mean? Um, I've had conversations with Latter-day Saints that would, they would agree with all of this and say, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then, and then the word faith is a, is a, is a questionable thing. And so we, we have to parse that out. What, what, what do I mean by faith that actually is effectual in this righteousness uh, versus what do they mean by faith, uh, which, which actually in itself has some undertones of the works in them for, from the Mormon perspective. Absolutely, Dan. Um, About Eight months ago, I had written a blog post that before I even posted it on our website, I shared with my my missionary friend, and I thought it was just going to rock his world. And he read through it and emailed me back a few minutes later and said, Mark, I agree with all of this. I read back through it and I'm like, what? You don't agree with any of this. And I realized that everything hinged on the word faith. And if you, if you had the LDS interpretation of faith, you could believe everything that was written in it. If you had the Christian, you would not. And so I spent some time with him unpacking the word faith, and I gave him the very simple definition that we often use, which is faith is trust, not in my works, but trust in the perfect work of Christ alone. And I'll say, do you believe that? And he'll, he said, absolutely not. And I said, well, go reread it with that definition of faith, that it is trust not in my works, but only in the perfect works of Jesus for me. And he wrote me back just a few hours later and said, this paper's bonkers. Like, it's, there's nothing, nothing true in this at all. And I just thought that was mind-blowing. Yeah, that's interesting because in my conversations, I've had probably a little more challenge with the definition or the understanding of grace as mm-hmm. well. Um, and what I've seen happening in uh, the LDS world is a tr- an attempt to embrace the idea of grace, but not really what grace fully really means. So attempt to be more, um, less perfectionistic maybe, and put more emphasis on, you know, God's goodness and so forth. But it still ends up being uh, this this really important component of what I do. So so I've you know people are re- reinterpreting the second Nephi passage, Mark, that you mentioned. After all you can do means, you know, people are saying, LDS people are saying, well, that that doesn't mean what you think it means, or they won't quite say that doesn't mean what our leaders have always taught that it means. Um, but you know, reinterpreting that is saying, well, after all, after you know, after everything that I've done, only grace will kick in then, and only grace is the ultimate. But but in practice, um, that it, it's still not by grace alone and faith alone. And, and and if you look at the LDS scriptures, the rest of the LDS scriptures in Book of Mormon and et cetera, there's still this very conditional idea of grace. 
So, but but I have to I have to spend some time unpacking what grace really is um, with people before they can understand, like you said, Mark, the framework that I'm offering that I'm presenting from Scripture. Um, you know, if they don't understand grace, then they're they're not going to be able to really get the point I'm trying to make. So those are this is another word that that becomes a hang up. Absolutely, and I, I think that's why in our direct to Mormon side of the ministry, the BE Perfect side, we've really been spending a lot of time over the last six months developing a framework where all of our blog post content, the videos that we're creating, we are making sure that those definitions of sin, grace, faith, and works are, are prominent and prevalent up front. Uh, we just recently created a, a video series using Ephesians 2 as the framework um, that talks through those four key concepts um, using and again, the, the BE Perfect website, we're, we're trying to really come out in a, a non-offensive way to a Mormon just to plant seeds of the gospel. And so, unfortunately, I'm not able to like respond to the LDS um, definitions of all of those terms in quite the way that I could in a normal conversation. Yeah, thank you. So how can, how can we, how can the everyday person, how can the church leader uh get involved in this kind of thing how can we take some of these lessons that you've learned and and put it into practice in our lives that's a great question dan i, I think what i often try to do myself and then train individuals is to be prepared to have conversations at any moment um, whether it's with a friend that you're gonna sit down with for supper and enjoy some time with them afterward or the person sitting next to you on a plane. And I have found that one of the easiest starter questions is really to ask about, tell me about your, your, your view of man and your view of God and how the relationship between the two of them works. And ultimately it's asking them to say, how do you view man and how do you view God and what it takes for man to approach or to attain righteousness before God. And I have often just been cutting straight to the, the, the crux of it and saying, what does it take to get the best that God has to give in the celestial kingdom? When, when I'm talking directly to someone, I'll, I'll just use the word celestial kingdom. It's like, if I want to get there, what's, what does it take? And I often find that that's a very easy transition then to say, can I talk to you about what the Bible says about what it takes to get the best that God has to give? And that's an easy transition over to Ephesians chapter 2. And just to slowly and in a sense, methodically work through it, unpacking definitions, stopping along the way and saying, what is your view of sin? What is your view of grace? What is your view of faith? And often I have found that one of the, the things that we as Christian witnesses simply need to do is help our Latter-day Saint friends actually have an accurate view of what biblical Christianity teaches. Many of them have a characterization of what it teaches that is very, very far from the truth. And so I think so many are rejecting something that they don't even understand or have never even had completely articulated. And so, so many times at the door in Utah this summer, when we were wrapping up conversations, we heard things like, thank you. Thank you for giving me an accurate picture of what you Christians or other, you know, many, many Mormons today are now in or lumping themselves in with Christians, but what you other Christians believe. Um, thank you for just letting us know about that. And so I think if nothing, nothing else, 
then you're at a door or you're sitting across the table or you're sitting next to someone on a plane. They have heard the true doctrines of sin, grace, faith, and works for perhaps the first time in their life. And our ministry is primarily a seed planting ministry where we want to go and just plant those seeds of the gospel that we are confident that God is going to continue to work and grow in their lives. I, I constantly go back to Paul's words in Romans where he says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of how many people that believe of everyone that believes. And so we just at some point need to give them the gospel. And Paul does that very clearly here. Um, I make sure to spend time talking about Jesus Christ um, in this section and unpacking who he is in Christian doctrine, that he is not an, ex an example to follow, but a substitute to worship and praise and give thanks to. So lots of ways. I, I think it's, it's one where, again, Luther always talked about that someone who is able to properly divide law and gospel and sin, grace, and faith and works. He says, give him a doctor's hat. Um, he says, it's, it's not a science, it's really an art. And so the art of evangelism using this framework, it takes time. But the, the more opportunities you have to do it, the easier it is to kind of have those initial conversations that go in circles, but then transition more quickly into really getting at the heart of the matter, which I am finding more and more revolves around these four key concepts. And so if you can have those questions, if you're sitting down with missionaries. Um, if you've invited them into your home, start with those definitions. What is sin? What is grace? What is faith? What is works? And then take them to Ephesians 2. Yeah, I've found that witnessing of Jesus is is a skill that really has to be learned and it actually has to be practiced uh, a, a lot like any sport or riding a bike. You you don't initially know how to do this. And, and so there does need to be a process of learning some some simple ways of witnessing of Jesus and then actually practicing it. Sometimes I'll, I'll practice sharing the gospel with my fellow believers uh, as a way of like refreshing my mind and my heart and my attitudes so that I can share with Latter-day Saints more effectively or with the right attitude. Um, what, what would you say is a next step for some people who want to get more connected with uh, this kind of work, with Truth and Love Ministry? What, what can they do next? Yeah, no, great, great question. If, if someone is interested in finding new ways maybe to witness to current contacts within the LDS world, if it's a friend or a family or missionary, I would encourage you to enroll in what's called our friends and family course. Um, that's one where we're going to set you up with a mentor, but also a, a community. Um, we have a Facebook group where people are constantly asking questions. So uh, a common question, and this gets asked probably once a month, is my friend, has a child that's going to be baptized, should I go to the, the baptism ceremony with them? It's a common question that, that comes up and it's really neat to see how our online community works with people and, and tells them, this is how I dealt with it or this is how I didn't deal with it well. Um, so that online community would be a great place. You can just go to tilm, T-I-L-M.org and you're gonna find how to enroll in those. Um, if you're interested in finding new contacts to witness to, I'd encourage you to sign up for that Please Open the Door program. 
Um, it's one where we're going to walk alongside you from the initial training to sitting down with you via Zoom or over the phone or in person if you're local and really saying, all right, so you've had the first two conversations with your local LDS missionaries. Here's how to now start to transition the conversation where you're more the teacher and they're more the student. Um, and then if you really want to do what Dan and I have just been talking about the last few minutes, where you really start to have the opportunity to have these conversations over and over and over again. Join us for one of our at the door mission trips. Yeah, thank you so much for those opportunities. And thanks for thanks for joining us today for this conversation. It's been really, really encouraging, really helpful for me to consider some of these different frameworks of how to approach uh, witnessing conversations with Latter-day Saints and some of the lessons that you've, you've learned as you've walked in these conversations and led others to do the same. So thank you so much for joining and sharing. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you, brothers, for the great work you're doing there. Thank you in our prayers as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Again, this is the Culture Wise podcast, where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace.